What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. But the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. Hello, folks. Thank you so much for being with me here today. My guest today on the podcast is Don Nguyen. Don is a knife maker and the owner of his own self-titled knife company with over 42,000 followers on Instagram, at least at the time of this recording, and a really, in my opinion, signature style of knife design. What you can expect out of this episode is the topic of hiring and working with friends of yours. I was really excited to dive into this with Don. We also delve into educating people about knife making through social media media, as well as his design process to engineer a knife made for the kitchen. I think that's a very important caveat that people don't uh, talk about enough. And believe it or not, we touch on his ramen practice, which is fascinating, and what would be his last bowl of ramen that he would order if it had to come down to that. If you do enjoy this interview, I recommend you queue up my interview with Mareko Maumasi, another legendary knife maker and friend of Don's, coincidentally. It's a small world. That is episode 82 of the podcast, so that's something to jump into right after this. If at any point you like to pause and check out Don online or any of the specific linkable things that we discuss, please do check out the show notes, which are available in the description of this podcast, wherever you're listening, or always available on justincona.com slash media. I know I pitch Patreon a lot in this kind of intro outro section of the podcast, but there was a, let me check, 18 minute and 46 second start of the interview, like when we first jumped on the call, when we basically talked about Don's journaling practice, how he overcomes like pressure on social media. And we just delved into like, it was at the time when uh, George Floyd passed. It was when all the Black Lives Matter protests were happening. And uh, it was just like a heavy, heavy time. And we kind of just, that, that's how we started our conversation. And I didn't think it was incredibly impactful towards getting to know Don as a knife maker. So that's a 18 minute, almost 20 minute long Patreon exclusive that's going to go up and so for that that's just a little bit of extra content and some love uh, for everybody that's supporting there so if you haven't supported there already if you join you just get immediate access to this piece so I hope you folks enjoy that let's get into the interview again thank you so much for having me in your ears today here we go if, if you don't mind I would actually like to to kind of dig into that a little bit because you have been you know d- delving into you, the YouTube space a little bit what what kind mm-hmm. of uh prompted that did you did you just see it as a a new avenue for you to create content and get the word out about your work did you get inspired by seeing someone else creating and you're like I can I can do that kind of talk about those early days YouTube style I think it's a combination of all of that I for some reason I've always wanted to do like videos of some sort and on my channel I have some videos that are pretty old like I've got a right my very first video is like me finishing a handle and that was like 2000 14 or something right. i can't remember yep. Yep. and then the other one was like this this like outdoor chopper that i made for the university competition and i just liked the process like it was this creative outlet that wasn't just knife making and it was also a way to get people like educated a little bit on what goes in the process like so many people see this romantic side of knife making and they're like oh it's always like fire and like romance and you know sparks and shit it's like 
there's a lot of bullshit to it honestly totally. there's a lot of stuff that's not fun um there's i mean there is some fun stuff but it's it struggles too and when you're making or at least thinking through making a video and you can talk about how how you thought about it early on versus how you kind of th are thinking about it now because you you have kind of gone through a little bit of a i want to kind of up the up the quality of my youtube game a little bit at least from mm -hmm. what i've noticed you posting so do you think about knife making content via the lens of this is something that i would want to watch or you think through it from the perspective of i want to show that the process isn't all that sexy i want to kind of show i want to i want to pull the curtain back a little bit it's both it's yeah. both for sure like ultimately these videos are for my enjoyment like i'm doing it as a hobby i get like no money out of it i've got like three patreon subscribers <laughs> those are just people that are just like i really support your work here you go i was like dude you just paid for like eggs and bacon <laughs> yep yep, yep. But otherwise it's like i'm not gonna make videos that i don't enjoy watching like what's the point in that yep yep but, but so it's part yeah but I think that's important to talk about, right? Because because there are a lot of people, and you know, I'm I'm coming at it from the lens of, um, you know, the 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 chefs posting things online perspective, mm. where, you know, there there are a lot of people who just want to make themselves look like a Food Network person just on the internet. You know, like they have their their little bowls of all their their pre measured out ingredients, and they're just kind of pouring it into a thing and whisking it together, and then all of a sudden, oh look, coming out of the oven. Um, and, and from that perspective, it actually doesn't show enough of the unsexy stuff. And I think that that can often cause cause a lot of like um, uh, mismanaged expectations with people thinking about working in food because mm -hmm. they think that it's going to be this, you know, very, very polished, manicured kind of thing. And then they get into it and, and they realize, oh, there's actually a little bit more to this. And so I think that what I like about your stuff and, and what I hope to do with my stuff as well is kind of be a little bit more transparent and, and industry focused as opposed to you wanting to be the next knife maker that William Sonoma highlights. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you've obviously done some stuff where you are the one that's filming, but as someone who has also kind of played between both of those things, do you find that it is a beneficial kind of, relationship to have someone come make the videos with you or do you like to have control over that whole process because it's something that i've been struggling a lot with whether it's do i have someone shoot and then post produce am i able mm. to actually like articulate my ideas for how i want this video to look like i've been struggling with that a lot so so how have you been navigating that i'm learning with every single video like i'm not a filmmaker i Same. <laughs> i barely started Same. one year ago like and my the only other person helping with the videos is sam my my apprentice and it, like his job is knife making not filmmaking Amazing. so we're we're both just like oh like this looks fine right and then we're <laughs> figuring out like editing and all that he does a little bit on his own um it's something i've been thinking about like if this turns into something big, I would need help. Like I would need to hire somebody. Mm -hmm. And then it, the responsibility falls on to me is like, I have to communicate my ideas and my expectations as best as I can so that there's not disappointment on either side. And the same thing happens with knife making. Like it, it's a communication problem, right? I, I have these ideas in my head that I want to have like 
physically manifested. And the problem is I can't explain well enough how I want that geometry, how I want that profile, how I want the sequence and storytelling. Um, and some of the problem is just like, I don't even know myself what I want. So it becomes a, an even more complicated problem when I'm learning at the same time. And does that come from just in your, in your mind, does that um, comfort level with being able to communicate those ideas, does that come from just working with the same people over and over again so they can understand your process? Or, I mean, so, so I, I very attempting to be systematic with it, come, come at it from the lens of like, okay, how would my chef communicate a, a dish that he created and he wants on the menu now? Well, he would probably write a recipe for the different components. He would probably like show everyone what a finished plate looks like. And then if at any point in the service there is an issue with how something is plated, he would, you know, come back with the plate, show us what's wrong, and then we would have to make adjustments from there. Mm -hmm. So should we be, you know, and this is for anybody that's kind of creating content or, or wanting to kind of systematize any element of their business, should we be thinking about it in that way? Or is it just consistently having conversations with people so that you develop this rapport so that you almost can finish each other's sentences, if that makes sense. Like, what 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 should we be thinking about? I think, I think it's um, more creating a system to better explain the process and your expectations and the end goals. I don't think it. I mean, you could have a scenario where like whoever you're working with is on the same exact wavelength as you, but that's, I, I just don't think that's realistic. Like me working with Sam, when I first hired him, I, the biggest problem was, I was like, well, Sam, this needs to be thinner. He's like, but like where, where thinner, like mid blade at the edge, like at the spine. It's like, well, now it's like, well, I want this area thinner. What do you name that part? So that next time when I need some correction on a blade, he knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and that's been a whole learning process for three years now. Um, How long mostly, does his hmm? apprentice last? Does his apprenticeship last? Uh, as long as he wants. He's Got basically it. my unofficial like business partner right Love now. It. Love it. Yeah. And did he, were, were, did you post, and this is getting into some nitty gritty and you can, you know, stop me if I'm going too far, but did you, did you end up posting that you're interested in bringing someone on to help with certain tasks? Like, how did you go about finding someone like Sam? Uh, so I actually knew Sam from high school. He was one of my first friends, sophomore year of high school. Amazing. And that was, that was like 12 years ago. We've, we've been in touch since then. Like, uh, he went a different path in college. I went engineering after a while and then he did art stuff. And then I forget what happened, but he was working with me at the university making race cars. Like we were designing and building race cars. And he, he had a little part of that for like a half a year or a year or something like that. And I don't know what happened because, but we had this like pipe dreams. Like one day we're going to work together and make knives. And he was shadowing me like every Monday. Just every Monday, he would come in, learn a little bit here and there, and then that was it. Then one day, he was just like, hey, Don, 
I quit my job. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, what? Oh man. And in his head, he's like, well, I got to apply for different jobs now. And I might not be able to do the Monday shadow thing anymore. Sure. In my mind, I, I was just like, well, shit, is it time to like fully hire him now? Like full time. And at that point, I, I had just gone full time myself. I graduated college. I was still living at my parents' place and I had no money. Like every knife I was selling was barely covering expenses for like supplies and just random shit sure so i was just like fuck it what's the worst that can happen which there's a lot that could have gone wrong but um in my mind i was like yeah let's just hire him and then he shows up the next monday and he's like all bummed because he's like searching for jobs and stuff i was like why are you all bummed like you're full-time now he's like what (laughs) amazing amazing did did you find that there was so two things I also, and he's not my business partner, but one of my best friends from college, from culinary school now is basically like the kind of second in command in the, in the culinary program at at my event production company. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a lot of, and you know, him and I have worked together professionally in the pop-ups that I've done. We've worked at the same restaurant together where I was the sous chef and he was the line cook Mm -hmm. chef de partie and so we've had this working relationship before but for whatever reason when it became this system when i i what i'm trying to get at is how do you navigate working with friends because i think that it's common for people especially in these kind of very hands-on industries especially when there's so much of this kind of like spoken communication that's back and forth like you're not mm-hmm. you're not sending sam an internal memo to tell him to thin out the blade of a knife you know you're you're going over right. to him on the workbench and saying hey man like this needs to be fixed and so i find and this you know also translates over into kitchen stuff is that like it's easier to have that friendly relationship especially if you're spending you know 10 hours a day together so, but, mm-hmm. but a lot of people struggle with that, working with friends and kind of turning that friendship into a working relationship. So, so what, what has been helpful for you in navigating that? Uh, I feel like I was lucky, number one. Like, he's been pretty great for almost every aspect. Like, it took us a while to learn to work together and, you know, just to be efficient at making knives and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, it's... It's at the point now where I don't even consider him like a friend. He's like my brother almost. Right, right. And part of that is I think you have to temper your expectations. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to be realistic about time frames, about goals, about like direction and that kind of stuff. Um, for us, some days we don't really talk that much. We like we we show up, we get stuff done, we talk about like what needs to be done and what's next and whatnot but like uh some days we're just there to just make knives and then some days um some days we like have a heart to heart and we're like okay so where are we at mentally how's the business going um what's the next step we can take and you know we have like a i don't know just a mental check do you do you find that that kind of transparency is what's needed when when so so two things do you and this is me kind of hopefully reading between the lines maybe it's beneficial maybe it's not 
the mm. fact that it's your company is is self-titled, right? That yeah. your name is stamped on the side of the the blade, the finished product, right? Mm -hmm. Is there some beneficial kind of like that is a proverbial line in the sand, right? You guys didn't call this um, purple pig knives, right? Where it's like, oh, well, we're in this together. Mm -hmm. the, the 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 structuring of the business where it is your business and he is an employee, but he's also a friend, but he's also like you're talking about an apprentice and also a business partner, right? Like you have these heart-to-heart mm -hmm. -heart conversations, but the what I'm saying is the structure that is built into the way that the business is marketed and all of that stuff almost protects from any sort of um, struggles with ego or, or anything like that. Do, do, do you do you notice that? Do you think that that uh, helped unintentionally or do you feel like, you know, you going back and doing things again, you wish you would have structured it differently? No, I think it definitely helps. So like one one important thing is Sam doesn't want to make his own knives like he he doesn't really have an interest of like starting his own knife company or anything like that, which is I think I'm super lucky. Like most most apprentices would come, they learn a bunch of stuff, then they leave and do their own thing. Um, he's kind of in it with me, like this whole business is, you know, where we're kind of in it together. But at the same time, he's not an actual business partner. I think that's important because because then the expectations are very clear. It's like I have my own direction. I have the designs I want to make and he's there to help. And right. I mean, the job description is pretty clear. And I, yep, go ahead. I think, I think having things clear and laid out like that is probably the most important part. It's when you start getting like vague boundaries where things can start getting a little bit wishy-washy and um, I don't know. I've, I've heard a lot of things where a partnership doesn't work out because there's two different directions or multiple multiple directions that people want to go. Yeah, I think especially when you have these friendships that can sometimes develop because of work, right? So I in in at least the chef space you hear it pretty frequently where oh well so and so and I worked together at insert restaurant and then when I it was time for me to open my restaurant I called up this person that I used to work with, right? Because you, you have this experience of knowing how they work, what their skill set is. In a, in a lot of respects, you can talk to them on a level where you both understand communication styles and all that stuff. I think the what 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 I'm hearing you say, and what I think people can keep in mind, is to acknowledge what variables they're dealing with, so that it makes right. it easier if you go into a working relationship with a friend. Um, what lines in the sand are already are already drawn, right? So, mm -hmm. is it is it one friend's company and they're hiring another friend? Is it two friends going into business together? Were you friends before you started working together, or did you develop this friendship while you're working on a project? I think there's all these things that people need to keep in mind to yeah. ultimately, because you know, at the end of the day, you and I, Don, we might have a couple of different ventures that we enter into in this lifetime, but mm -hmm. you. you that we can't yes business is a relationship but i i feel like a lot of people get caught treating friendships like they're just throwaway business opportunities like oh another one will come along you know but no absolutely not yeah yeah um 
yeah, and 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 I think that's helpful for people to hear from you, where you know that this is kind of the lens by which you've decided to structure your business. I I, I do want to. You mentioned um, engineering, and I notice mm. it when I look at your knives in particular. And if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of get into kind of your thought process in designing a knife when you're kind of problem solving and putting mm-hmm. your point of view on how a chef knife works i know you mentioned even in just like the the bio of your instagram that loving food is kind of like a a kind of cornerstone of how you look at these things but in making metalworking projects i think there's there's a lot of people who go the the hunting route there's a lot of people who do the kind of everyday carry route and then there's this other space that Obviously, I find fascination in because I'm a chef, but I also find that the the knife maker themselves tend to have these very interesting inspirations but behind why they choose kitchen knives. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess, it, it, you know, make it a little bit longer than an elevator pitch, but kind of talk to me a little bit about your, your design process. It's, oh, man, the, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with this. I mean, this can be another two-hour interview Ooh. at this point. Yeah, damn. Oh, shit. So where do I start? I guess right now, like the design process for my kitchen knives, one is like, what kind of knife do I want to make? Like, is it a big workhorse? Because I like using those personally. Is it a smaller petty? Um, I, I first define like, what is the identity of the knife that I want to make? And that kind of, I don't even know if that makes sense. But it it completely does, right? Because you, so I think about this a lot with with dishes sometimes where you might have an ingredient you want to use or a a flavor combination you're you're interested in, but in in the structure of a menu, you have to decide where is this dish going to go because then that can dictate how the execution ends up being what vessel do you plate it in what other flavors go with it what temperature texture are you thinking about so it makes complete sense that you're thinking through oh well if i'm going to design something with carbon fiber in the handle or if it's going to have this interesting geometric shape to it what is it going to be used for is a very lo- it seems to me like a very logical question to start with yeah but it seems like you're almost like meta tagging the knife in advance before you start the process? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think about the feel of the knife um, pretty early on. Like, how heavy should this thing be? Like, where should the balance point um, line up? And then I, I don't know, I think about it as like, when you first open this thing and you first pick it up, what kind of emotion is it going to appeal to? And that kind of like, for me, that dictates the overall theme and the aesthetic of the knife, um, the materials, the finish. And then I think about the cutting style also. So there's like, you know, like the push and pull cuts, the rock chopping. And I don't know. I don't, I don't know if there's any specific pathway that I take. There's like, oh, A, B, C. And then like, you know, like once you go through this, then this is the next obvious choice for design or anything like that it's just kind of what i'm feeling and sometimes i don't even know where a knife is going to head up like for example i just i finished a knife recently that 
I, I call it the sci-fi knife. Um, some people have seen it here and there. Yeah, it was unfinished for a long time, and I don't think there's anything out there like even remotely close to this. What I've just created, I was like, well, nobody's ever done it. Like, how hard can it be? Let's just try it. So it's this giant slicer, um, with with this like crazy five-layer handle with like the uh, the handle butts like inspired by Evangelion. Um, and I was thinking to myself, I was like, who is the intended user for this? And what are they even going to use it for? And honestly, like my thought was just like, it's going to be some guy who, who like eats a lot of steak or like Wagyu or, you know, it's like something ridiculous like that. Or maybe he won't even use it at all. Sure. But when they pick it up, it should be like this heavy ass knife that you're just like whoa like this thing is ridiculous kind of like i don't know like my kitchen axe it's just sometimes it's not the most practical thing at all actually most of the time it's not totally. but is is it the most fun object in my kitchen i think so so some a point that you brought up early on in that that um point you just made was balance point mm-hmm. and it's it's so in this age of being able to buy things online i think that it is one of the first kind of principles that i spoke about in early videos of you know just knife recommendations in general for people is if you can get it into your hands that's going to be your best bet because 9 times out of 10 it's, it's, so it what it it is this kind of like seventh or eighth sense that we have right because it's not the sense of touch it's the sense of how something moves in relation to the force that you put on it and just gravity's pressure on it mm-hmm. and so do you find that in a in a knife you're looking for a central balance point or based on the length and how it's planning on being used that dictates the balance point it's kind of that second one yeah. And most of these, I don't engineer the balance point. I kind of have a feel for like the length, the thickness, and the handle style and the materials. I kind of know where it's going to end up. And to me, there's no there's no real like right answer for balance. Like it's just going to end up where it ends up and somebody's going to like it. As long as it's not too far out there. Like, for example, like a global knife. I hate the balance point on global. Same, same. I fucking hate it i was just like i don't ever want my knives to feel like that mm. but at the same time you get a different light knife like a lot of japanese knives with the the super light handles even though it's it could be the same weight or less it feels better it feels more substantial and it just feels like you have more control over it and mm-hmm. part of that is is where the balance ends up but a lot of it is like what you said like how does gravity affect it how are you moving it around and there's an engineering term called, you know, I'm not engineering or not engineering in general, but like physics or whatever. It's the moment of inertia. Like where is the weight displaced on the the ends of the, like at the tip, at the butt, in the middle. So it's not just where the balance is. It's how much of the weight is like moving around relative to your hand or whatever. It's Totally. But it, it is something that is, is difficult to articulate in these kind of English words that we're trying to translate here because yeah. because it is it is such a feeling. And, and what I'm trying to hopefully um, myth bust, I guess, for people is this idea that they have to go through this test of that 
stupid cliche that you see people do with it like they'll put the they'll put their finger they'll ba- they'll try mm-hmm. to balance the knife on their finger in the in the middle point where the blade meets the handle and yeah. for 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 some sort of weird arbitrary reason if it manages to keep the blade level that must mean it's a good knife but what you're telling me is that's not even close to the case i mean it could be good but it could be terrible like i can de- i can design and make two different knives with the same exact balance point but they feel like totally different one could feel really good and the other could like it could just be shit right and they balance exactly the same place right i see i see and then it also has to deal with like if you're if you need the the blade of the knife to have some weight and some heft based on the cutting that you're doing with it, you you intentionally want it to be unbalanced in the sense of you want it to be more blade heavy versus handle heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And Interesting. another point that I need to make is like the way that I make knives, or most people and most people that make knives like in their own shop or whatever the handle is never going to be as light as it can be with like a Japanese knife or anything like that. Like if I make a full tang knife or even just a hidden tang knife, the materials that I'm using are just, they're just much more dense. There's no way around that. And my goal, honestly, for most of my knives is to make the handle as light as possible. And then through that and through making the geometry the way I want it, it, it balances out pretty, pretty well, I think. Um, Talk to me about the the, ge- the geometric approach you take to knives, knife handles, because you you seem to have this. I mean, I I'm I'm com- I'm comparing it on the spectrum, completely on the opposite end to like a Kramer style knife, where it's it's this big balloony kind of curvaceous, uh, you know, thing that sits, that sits in your hand that a lot of people enjoy, but you seem to enjoy this kind of multifaceted in the in the best sense approach mm. to, to handle design so did that come from where did where did that originate it it was kind of an accident to be honest yeah um i started doing an octagonal shape and then when you're making an octagonal if you start out with like thick enough material you're going to get a hexagon that's just how the geometry works out well, if you take a hexagon and you taper it from the back to the front, which is kind of a nice thing that I, I like in a handle is like a tapered handle, you get this really nice triangle on the side of the handle. And it feels good. It looks good. It just kind of worked out. And then I, I liked rounded bottoms because for me, different parts of your hand respond differently to like how angular a handle can be or how round it can be. Like the the pads of your fingers, they needed they need soft edges. Like you right. can't have a harsh edge in your pads of your fingers. But like your palm, like the base of your thumb, it doesn't really care. It almost wants harsh edges to index. Well, so I'm I'm kind of doing this and people that are listening, whether you're on a train heading to work or you're you're in you're in the gym and you need to just stop for a second, kind of like and I'm, I'm doing this myself, and I'm, I'm sorry that this is – I don't have a visual for people listening to just the <laughs> audio of this. I'm kind of like reaching my fingers around towards my palm, and then I'm looking into the hole that my hand makes. And it does – weirdly enough, I've never done this before, Don, but I'm doing this on, on this interview. It has these sharp angles to it. It's not a complete um, – it's not a smooth kind of like – shape that your hand naturally makes and so it makes a lot of sense when you're talking about this 
the, right. these, these angles that your handle has where it can actually fit into these creases that your your finger naturally makes as, as it as it curls to grab a knife mm-hmm. yeah so do you do you find that that this has almost become like a, a signature that you want to consistently do across knives that that you know people people scrolling through the the hundreds of knife maker accounts when they see the angled kind of approach that you look at handles do you see that as this is my this is my stamp this is kind of something that i'm i want to become known for or this is this is something that you saw as a a a a problem that you could solve through ergonomics and design but this, there, there's still work to be done to find this kind of ideal knife handle. Obviously, depending on the the style of knife, but but is there still work to be done? Are you are you happy with where you've kind of landed with handle design? Um, I'm happy enough, but I'm never like I'm never gonna hit a point where it's just like, yeah, I'm done. Like right. <laughs> I've right. I've got nothing else to, to develop. Um, I I made a post, I think today or something, where I was talking about handle design and my end goals and one of the goals is to make something that's comfortable but easy to make and i think that's actually really hard to do actually it's comfortable ergonomic easy to make and unique the combination of all of those is really difficult sure like you can make things that are comfortable and unique but it might take a lot of hand filing or like you know like a bunch of just tedious work and that that kind of signature handle that I do with that tapered hexagon, mm-hmm. it takes me like on a full tang blade with the handle glued on there, profiled, squared off. It'll take me like twenty five minutes to get it to almost finished. Wild, and yeah, that so. But but dig in dig into that because a lot of people would call that you know all of those criteria that you posted about and that you just you just said it it completely goes against the idea that people have that what is that uh, triangle that people talk about you can have it good quality you can have it fast or you can be you can have it cheap and a lot of mm-hmm. people say you can only pick two when you're talking about these criteria where it's ergonomic it's comfortable it's aesthetically pleasing and easy to make a lot of people would say okay there's four you can only have three but you're telling mm-hmm. me that you've you push to try to get all four of them nailed. Why, why, why is that? Uh, I don't know. I never thought about like limitations as far as like, well, that's not possible. So I'm not, not going to try. Right. Um, it's definitely, definitely difficult, especially with all the new makers. Now it's like, if you design a handle, you're probably going to get close to something that someone else already made, or it's probably a handle that doesn't work, or it's a handle that you've put so much time into that it's not repeatable. Interesting. And even though I'm kind of known for like handle designs and having the signature style, in the years that I've been making knives, I've got that one hexagon, that tapered hexagon is like my most well-known style. I've got a hidden tang style that's kind of like also well-known but harder to do. And I've got variations of those. There's there's not much else. And when you even just the, the way that you market your brand the products you sell the knives in general that it's not a it's not a situation where people can come order something custom from you right and Mm -hmm. and for people that this is kind of a primer on you uh you guys 
if if someone's learning about you guys for the first time, you don't take custom orders. You 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 finish a piece, and then it goes up for sale, right? Yeah, that's most of how we do our business. I mean, I have an existing custom order list that I started a couple of years ago, and I work through through those gradually, but I'm not adding to that list. And so, have you found that that gives you? freedom and creative control do you find that it sometimes will result in you not being able to sell a knife or, or just because of the the following and the waiting list that you've kind of amassed when a product is ready it is able to move pretty quickly because you know someone's waiting on it regardless of the type of knife that it is right yeah it, right now that is the case because i'm super fortunate that like i've kind of built up this audience that wants my work um, but it wasn't always like that. When I first went full-time, um, the demand and supply weren't really in tune with each other. So like I had the certain demand, but that was only as a part-time maker in college. So I was making like 10 or 12 knives a year. Wow. And the, the price wasn't even that high. Like it was, it was a fraction of what it is now. And when I went full-time, I was like, well, people like my work. Like how hard can it be? I'll just make some stuff and people will buy it. And then I made this first batch of knives and I was so confident that it would sell out. And I was, you know, like three, three or four people bought um, out of that batch of like 15 knives. So I had these, like this, more than half of the batch was just unsold. I was like, shit, now what? I've just put in all this time, like blood, sweat and tears. And I've got these knives sitting and not, mu not much money, honestly. Right. Do you feel like that style of approaching a project like this where you, you're able to make something and then go find someone who is interested in, like if you had to go back and do it again, if someone is kind of listening who is interested in, you know, they've made a couple of knives um, either for themselves or for friends and family and they're interested in kind of like diving, because man, th this style of buying knives and marketing blades on the internet through Instagram was not available when I started off in the <laughs> industry at all. When I, when I wanted a knife, I had to find a knife maker. I had to go on a, a really poorly designed forum where people were mm -hmm. talking about steel types and, you know, that, that was the knife buying and researching process. Whereas now anybody can, while they're taking a shit in the morning, <laughs> buy, buy a, a custom made, really thoughtfully designed knife just by sending a DM and, you know, PayPaling money over, you know? So like yeah. if someone is thinking about starting off, is that kind of the, the approach that you would go now or is there kind of like a new way that you're thinking about launching new products? It's really difficult because I mean, I think, I think the best way or maybe not the best, but the most satisfying way for me is the way I'm doing it, which is just make whatever I want put it up and then maybe somebody will buy it. Mm -hmm. But to get to that point is really hard because if you don't have an if you don't have an established audience and you just make something and put it up for sale, like who's gonna buy it? Right. It's for it's orders a... though, it's it's almost the opposite thing. Like people love to throw down down payments on a custom order. And for anybody that's new and starting out, like that's kind of a good way to go about it is building up custom order lists making knives for people that want specific designs or specific specs, and then eventually possibly gradually like 
getting off of that custom order list and then starting to add in more knives that you just want to make and offer it to whoever wants it. And then once you start developing an audience and they're willing to buy knives that you've just kind of created on the spot, then you can think about just having like an email list and making whatever you want. So, and I, I, I immediately noticed this the first time that I think that you and I DM'd or when I when I, found, I stumbled upon your just account on Instagram in general, you take the aesthetics of how your products are presented very seriously. And I'm noticing um, Caleb comes up as kind of like someone that does images for you. Do you, because it is, it is almost the complete opposite of what you'll see with makers who are not making knives any differently than you, but how they choose to market their knives is kind of like this um, top-down iPhone photo from the back of their shop or, you know, out in the backyard next to a tree. And, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you can get a good look at the knife. But the way that you lay things out on a on a textured background and it seems like there's lighting involved like you take all of this stuff very seriously how people find your products and how they can look at the the knives that you're making so if someone is thinking about building that audience how important is the aesthetics and how you present the the knives oh my god so important like it's it's ridiculous and in some ways it's kind of sad how important it is <laughs> it's just the truth i mean you and i are talking about like it it would be so great if someone could feel the knife to feel how it balances in their hand blah 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 but like Mm -hmm. when when instagram is the only option like the only other way i could possibly think about doing it is like having a video where it's like you you show the knife completely 360 and you know i know that some of the videos you're making now uh solve that problem but like Mm -hmm. You get one chance, right, in the Instagram feed or on someone's explore page or, you know, whatever to show off what this knife looks like. Yeah. And the way that social media works now is like you've got a fraction of a second to catch somebody's attention. And there are so many new knife makers now. And a lot of them are doing the similar photography style that you're talking about. Or like, you know, they just lay it out. They take a photo and and that's it. But when people are scrolling through, you know, the feed, and they're going through photos and photos and photos, each with like, you know, a third of a second, maybe a half a second. You got to think about how to catch their attention and then be able to get that person to potentially sign up for a sales thing or like to send you a message that they want uh, an order or something like that. So it's all about that first impression. So someone who is is exclusively kind of shop focus they just want to focus on making knives designing the products maybe you know leading leading the vision of the brand or coming up with new features or researching new steel types or or whatever and they're like listen man like i don't like taking photos photos are not my thing do do you you hire out do you see it as an investment talk talk to talk to that person who is just kind of like completely anti nice photos of their products how can they how can they do this it depends what they want like if they want to sell their knives and make a profit then i think it's a necessity i don't think there's a way around it like it gone are the days where you could just make a good product and then sell it because the fact is like now like knife shows they're getting less and less popular Uh people are buying less at like blade show or like you know, like any other show like that, more people are buying online. 
And so, like, with this influx of new knife makers, how are you going to stand out when everybody is kind of doing the same thing or better? I don't know. And is it a is it a product photographer you're looking for? Is it someone who is um, familiar with using macro lenses? Like, how do you find these people to, to help you ultimately show off this hard work that you've put in? I think it depends on your time and your money. So like if you have a lot of money, but not a lot of time, you could just send your knives to Caleb or, or Coop and they'll do a great job. They'll advertise for you. You'll get, you know, you get engagement off of it and you pay a certain amount. And you know, like that's that you, you get a good portfolio piece and or you can start learning photography yourself, which is what I did. I started learning probably a couple of years ago and I didn't start off with a good camera. I just kind of took some, basic, you know, like lighting and composition and just the essentials that you look up, like how to take a good photograph online and then you just start practicing. And two years later, here I am. I've I've gotten a decent hang of it, I think. Well, I I think that a lot of people who may or may not, I mean, it's not something I would have thought of where you... You, you, you say, okay, I have five products finished. I'm going to send these to a photographer who's going to stage them. They're going to light them. They're going to take the photos for me. They're going to send the products back safely in the, the packaging that I provide for them. I mm-hmm. mean, this ultimately, what I'm hearing you say is, is it kind of remove, as long as you are able to find a photographer that works with rates that you're able to cover, which, you know, in the grand scheme of how you're selling your knives, that's part of your marketing budget, you know? Like, you should yep. be able to create budget for this. What, what, that process that you just told me, it, it removes any excuses from someone because you don't have to have a, a fancy studio set up. You don't have to have an expensive light. You find a product photographer who is willing to work with you to create these digital assets for your products. Like, that's a pretty big game changer for people. Yeah. And I mean, I get it. I'm like, money is an issue. It's not cheap, mm-hmm. but like, you don't have to get a pro photo for every single knife you make. Right. Like when I, when I was kind of early into getting full time, I just made maybe like once every two months, once every three months, I made something that I was like, okay, this is going to be my best work. I'm going to put my heart and soul into this and then I'll send it to a pro photo to keep it in my portfolio. Mm-hmm. And I did that for a couple of years and you know, like people start getting, um, they start getting awareness into your work and you're like, oh, that guy makes pretty good stuff. Like, it's nice. They see the consistency. They see the growth. They see the quality in it. And then and then it just goes from there. Let's see. There's a couple – well, there's a couple of directions I want to take this. I So talk to me about this $1,800 spoon, man. Because <laughs> I I, the, I I saw it and I I like I chuckled at it for a second and then I like I kind of geeked out about it for a second and and I I just want to hear you riff on that for a minute. It's a meme, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I don't even know where that even started. I have a friend who who was a photographer and editor for a local like food magazine and food um food blog type thing Tucson Foodie. Uh-huh. And for one of the April Fool's things, they they always have like some sort of joke. And he hit me up, it's like, hey, you want to make something fucking ridiculous for April Fool's? It's like, sure, I'll make like a tiny ass mixing spoon and we can make a fake story out of it. And 
we did that. He took some nice photos. He wrote up this whole like elaborate thing. Basically, like he took one of my old knife articles and just changed everything to spoon. Right. And people thought it was real. Oh my goodness. Like a lot of people were just like, what the fuck? Like, why are you charging that much for a spoon? Totally. And I'm just like, well, read the article, read the bottom of it, check the date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it all makes sense. But like, I, I see that ripple out throughout a lot of the content that you make where you, you have this sense of humor that you bring to it, which I feel like a lot of chefs and even this, this comes back to kind of our, our early conversations around like everything has to be politically correct. Everything has to be kind of designed to not hurt people's feelings. And for you to be able to kind of like bring memes into it and you're, you're okay with kind of joking around and having some fun with it. Like, like what, what do you have to say to someone who is kind of like a little bit too serious about it? Or how do you, how do you approach incorporating humor into your work day? I think you just got to be less serious about yourself. So I used to be one of those people where it's like, no humor. I'm doing everything serious. This is craft. And that's how my life's going to be. And then I got sick of that. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it's I, no I just see live. online. It's like, you see, yeah, you just see online like so many products, so many brands. It's just like, yes, this is the bespoke craft artisan firewood or whatever. You know, like, it's just sure. so much bullshit out there. Yeah. Like, uh, hand-stitched leather shoes that are you know uniquely designed for premium ergonomics and it's just like you see that so much and i was just tired of it i was like you know what like people like honesty they like some bullshit yeah and i'm just gonna be myself online do do you feel like and you know this this is also the luxury of you being the one that's posting and you know you're like i like i was saying your name is stamped on the side of the knife it is this kind of blessing and the curse where you, you do have the ability to kind of speak unfiltered because people know that it's Don who is, who's doing the talking and who posted the, these photos. But then I feel like people can get often get paralyzed when they create a, a company or a brand because they feel like it has. And I, I struggle with this a lot with um, the event production company that I, that I co-founded where we still don't know exactly what the voice of that brand sounds like. And it's very difficult for us to come to a, to a consensus on what we want to post from that account because, um, because it feels like it has to have a a point of view or, or I get self-conscious sometimes when, when I feel like I wrote the post because it's so obvious that, Oh, Justin posted this photo, you know, but Mm. it's coming on, on behalf of the account. But what I'm, what I'm, what I'm hearing is because you, you give yourself permission to not take yourself so seriously. It gives you the ability to not be so um, nitpicky about what you post. Yeah, that's true. Um, I would say the other side of it is I just don't really care. I don't think anybody really else, nobody really cares. Sure. Sure. Like the people that really care if you like, if you swear and they get offended, does it really matter? Not really. You didn't want them in your audience anyways. Exactly. And yeah. I don't, I don't know. I just don't find that really super important. And a lot of people that are struggling with like posting and they're just like, well, I want to make sure it's right for us. I think perfection is, you know, it's like the enemy of progress. Like you got to start somewhere and then you figure it out from there. Talk to me about in, as we kind of start to wrap up here, talk to me about sharpening. What do, what do you think about with sharpening in general there's a lot of people listening who are you know line cooks and culinary school students and sous chefs at restaurants 
And so they're either used to sharpening their own knives or they're used to dropping them off at someone who sharpens it for them. And maybe they're kind of wanting to get into sharpening. How do you approach sharpening in general? And, and what do you feel like most people get wrong with sharpening? Hmm. The cliche answer is find something that works for you, which is, it sounds stupid as fuck, but it's kind of true in my mind. Right. Like I, I've sharpened knives at farmer's markets and for like chefs and stuff like that. And a lot of people, if they pick up a knife from, you know, a chef, they're, they're just like, did you even take care of this? Like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Like, it looks beat up to hell. Yeah. But some context, like one of the knives I sharpened for somebody, it was, it was not good. I was like, you probably should consider buying a new knife. Well, that guy, and I'm sure a lot of chefs can, you know, like relate to this. He was working like 16 hour days. He had a family. He's probably working a part-time job. And that restaurant was going fucking 150% all the time. Like, are you going to find time to take care of your knives in that kind of environment where you don't really have that kind of control? I don't know. Probably. Like, I'm, I'm interested in hearing, I'm interested yeah. in hearing your thought because you, you have experience sure. in that. Yeah. So, so the, the approach that I always took with it was similar to how a lot of people look at car maintenance, where mm -hmm. you, you may or may not drop the car off to get an oil change just for sake of convenience. But if you break down on the side of the road, you at least want to be able to have a competent, you know, sense of what might be wrong with your vehicle, because, you know, you could save yourself the expense of getting it towed if you just know that you need to, you know, fix something with a spark plug or, or you know, so, something is unplugged and not connected right or, you know, whatever. And I think the same about knives. I think that if you are the person who doesn't have the time to spend the two hours every two weeks sharpening your knives, which is typically what it, what it takes when you're working professionally, depending on how many knives you have, Mm -hmm. I, I just see it as like, you know, I, I tell the story sometimes of this guy that I worked with who would buy a new knife. He would buy a $30 Victorinox and he would work with it until it got dull. And then he would throw it away and buy a new one because <laughs> he just he, he couldn't be bothered to, to sharpen his own knives. And I think that what is almost required when you're kind of jumping up to higher quality steels, if you want to get a... Uh, you know, and th th this is something that you can speak to more than I, but like if you're going to use a nice steel or you're going to use a nice handle, you kind of want the two to complement each other, right? Like you don't want to have a really amazing uh, steel with a with an edge that, that is, you know, specifically designed for the blade profile and how this knife is designed to be used. And then you end up throwing a really cheap kind of like feels really shitty in your hand handle on it. And you don't want right. the reverse, right? Where you don't want this amazing, you know, uh, uh, inlaid carbon fiber type of setup on the handle. And then the steel is just horrendously bad and it can't hold an inch <laughs> to save its life, right? So, yeah. and, but, but, but what happens when you, when you jump up to that level is the price goes up, right? Yep. So if you're going to make this investment in a knife that is you know, $200 plus for most people is, is, is kind of that threshold of like, okay, well I'm, I'm, I've gone up from the kind of standard run of the mill can get it at a, you know, standard cook store, um, knife. I'm really trying to make this investment. 
in my mind, that you have kind of put your flag in the ground where you're saying when this edge gets dull, which it will, that's just the yep. nature of using these tools, I'm not going to throw this knife away. I yep. am... I am choosing that I'm going to do the work required to re-up the edge of this knife. Whether you do it or whether you have someone else do it, I don't really, it, it doesn't really matter to me, but I feel like what it gives you is it gives you the ability to understand that, oh, when I do, when I have, so I, I had a, I had a guy who I went to, he was my roommate when we were living in, in New York. He was working at um, Momofuku Noodle Bar. Yeah. And as an intern, his, one of his jobs was to slice the green onions for service. And he had a Misono UX-10, and he would constantly come home and tell me, like, uh, after, like, four bunches of green onions, and I have to slice 30 bunches a night, I think is what he told me. He was like, after four bunches, my knife gets dull, and I don't know what's wrong with it. And, you know, me having some knowledge of, like, how just blade blade geometry works and how like after you're cutting these kind of really harshly layered onions the mm -hmm. edge is going to curl you know so you either need to hone or you need to like before your shift starts you just need to run it over a stone to make sure that the edge is kind of like there's not any little microchips in it like there's not any teeth that are going to curl over and cause an unpleasant cutting experience but to someone who is unfamiliar with knife sharpening in general they just see it as oh there must be a problem with the knife in the same way that i look at the car analogy it's like oh well my car won't start you know if you know oh well it's because you're you're repeatedly kind of pushing doing a rock chopping motion through onions that's going to cause even the the sharpest edge after a couple of minutes to kind of like curl over a little bit you know and yeah. all it takes is a quick hone to get it back into to a good place but kind of like that's how I think about about just sharpening in general. But um, it's a very principle kind of based approach to it where having the knowledge of why the knife does what it does is helpful because then if, you know, all of a sudden because for chefs, their prep list often changes either from week to week, from day to day, from season to season, you know, like you're using spring onions during the spring, but then all of a sudden you, maybe you want a different edge on your knife when squash season comes around and you're working with something that's a little bit harder. You know what I mean? Yeah. My, so, my take is, yeah. It's like, if you're, if you're getting into $200 plus territory, you have a responsibility to do a little bit of homework. Agreed. Like it's ultimately what you want, but if you want a nice knife, you have to do a little bit of homework and even just a tiny, tiny little bit helps a lot. It's like, well, find some videos on what sharpening actually is figured out like the process. And then from there, you just kind of practice and then you get better at it. But like, if you buy a nice knife, you can't have the excuses. just like, well, I don't want to take care of it. And I want a nice knife. It doesn't work like that. You have to, they go hand in hand. And that's what I wanted to be clear about with people is that, yes, I put out so much content about just sharpening in general because I, I do want people to have the agency to take this into their own hands. But it's not a case of me wanting to shame anyone for taking it to someone to sharpen it for you. You know, mm -hmm. I just I just don't want people to be completely clueless around kind of what's happening with their knives or in a pinch. Because, um, like, it's very real where... Um, I don't know, all of a sudden your chef gives you the opportunity to travel and you're all of a sudden in, you know, you're in Miami and you, you open your knife bag after the first day of prep and your knife is dull. Are you going to show up for that guest chef dinner where you're helping your chef with a dull knife? 
I don't, I don't think anyone would want to, you know, so are you going to do the work to try to find, you know, say if, hypothetically you call the knife sharpener in Miami and they say, hey, man, we're fully booked. Like we can't get your knife back for another week. You know, what are you going to yeah. do in that situation? You know, so right. just to have that in your back pocket, like you don't ha like if you're the person who's working 14 hours a day, there's no shame in sending your knives somewhere to get them sharpened, take care of them, because ultimately, like it's a safer way to cook. But it's a more enjoyable way to cook as well. Um, but yeah, I just like that. that that's kind of how I approach sharpening in general. And I, and I, I thank you for kind of like putting out content as well to help people wrap their head around this because it is intimidating when you start. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's how I started with knives. I was just like, well, I should learn how to sharpen. And right. there's just so much bullshit. I was just like, what is sharpening? Like, what the fuck is happening to this edge? Yep. Yep. And so do, do you, for someone that's starting, do you recommend that they kind of get like a, the $30, $20 Victorian ox just to see what angles on a whetstone does to a, a bevel or, or how do you, how do you approach like teaching a newbie, a complete newbie? Um, I don't really know anymore. Like I've sharpened Victorian oxes. They're pretty soft. And to me, the, those knives and knives with similar steel, it's hard to kick up a burr and feel it compared to like. I see. Compared to, I don't know, even just a $20 upgrade from that, like the Tojiro or something. Sure. So find a knife. What I'm, what I'm hearing you say and what people can hopefully take away from it is find a knife that has a steel that um, reacts, that gives you some feedback when you're on the stones. Yeah. But also, if you want to work with what you have, go for it. Absolutely. But I think there is this fear. I mean, literally, somebody sent me a knife... Uh, two weeks ago and it was like a Wustoff, but this, the, they were just completely befuddled by the fact that they were scratching the side of the, the blade mm. when they would yeah. sharpen. And to me, that's a simple case of, Oh, well your angle is a little bit too shallow. You know, you need mm -hmm. to kind of like lift it up a little bit and, you know, use your fingers to press more into the, the opposing side of the blade so that you keep your angle consistent. Um, but I think that it is, and this goes back to you and I talking about the balance of a knife so much of the sharpening process is by feel, you know, I can't give you yep. numbers of like, Oh, calibrate your hand to setting number eight and then <laughs> apply 13 pressure. And then you'll, you'll, you'll be fine. You know, like it's such yeah. a, it's such a feeling kind of, kind of thing to it. So it's, it's hard. It's hard to teach sometimes. Yeah. And that's why I don't like jigs. Everyone's just like, Oh, uh -huh. well, what about the jig? I was like, yeah, it'll work. But like, <laughs> if it doesn't work, how are you going to know what's going on? Right, you don't. Right. Yeah, that's so funny. I, I tell the story sometimes of like, um, I heard all these asymmetrical bevel conversations going on of like 70-30, 70-30, 60-40, blah, 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 80-20. And I ultimately, I misunderstood what people were talking about when they were talking about where the bevel went. And so for about a year in culinary school, when I first learned sharpening, I was doing it backwards. <laughs> so I was like, I had the bevel on the wrong side. Like I turned <laughs> all of my knives left-handed <laughs> over. Nice. And so like through that process, I basically learned like, oh, this is how this affects this. And this is what happens <laughs> when you have to flip it back the other way. And so like it was, you know, in the moment it felt like such a failure and I felt like such a dumbass. but like it ultimately taught me how to create bevels on knives over time. So that was like a really valuable learning experience for me. Sometimes learn the hard way. You like yeah, kind of get it 100%, better. Percent, hundred percent. Talk to me about your your. You know, as we're kind of wrapping up here, your relationship with food, just in general. Like, do you cook a lot at home? Do you do you like? Uh, obviously, with 
COVID ruining the world. Um, restaurants <laughs> are kind of hard right now. But kind of yeah. like, do you eat out quite a bit? Like, do you do you like going to restaurants? Do you do you cook a lot for yourself? You seem pretty food focused, but kind of what 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 is that like for you? Yeah, I'm just a casual home cook for the most part. I like making, I like making ramen. Like, love it from scratch. I love Amazing. making ramen. Do you? What, what is uh, your, I, do you do like the um, like four different types of seafood in the broth, like dried dried fish and stuff like that, or, or are you like simmer the chicken for for a while or pork? What's your ramen like? Um, it depends on which one I'm doing, but I do do like a, a tare with it, and then I do the broth. Um, lately I started with, started doing noodles by myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's been really nice. God, it's fucking a lot of work though. <laughs> Do you feel like it's like <laughs> night, like knife making in a, in a way, like in a weird way? Kind of. Yeah. It, it was similar to learning knife making cause it, it was so much like information. I, it was so hard to just even get context. It's like, what the fuck is like this shit? Like, I thought you just boil some meat juice and add some salt and stuff right right but it's like oh you gotta you gotta do your broth separately there's there's a process to doing the broth like you parboil you skim if you if that's kind of in in your philosophy for broth making and then there's the tare the oil the noodles the toppings i was like oh there's like different elements to it so i have i have to ask you have kind of one one last ramen bowl that you're going to get to eat <clears throat> what what's the broth and what's the toppings oh man it would i i'm a fan of like kind of lighter broths i don't know about super light so maybe like a super light shio wouldn't it yep, be for me yeah yeah but i i'm a sucker for shoyu love i it. love a good shoyu like i like minimal toppings so like it's got to have green onions, like okay. super thin green onions, chashu. Egg, to me, kind of optional. Like, I know some people would just be like, what the fuck? You have to have an egg. <laughs> right. But honestly, Take yeah, noodles, it. the broth, the tare, the chashu, green onions. That so, might be it for me. Do you, last question on ramen, I promise. Do you see anything <laughs> that is kind of like, abhorrently bad to put on ramen is there something that you're like i i, I hate when people <laughs> do this with their ramen uh, i used to think so like i i had a ramen once where there's like a big fucking scoop of corn and butter on it and i was like oh god why but like so i have to think about the area it, i i had that in texas it makes sense like for yeah. the region and the, the people there and like what they like but i don't know ramen doesn't really have rules sure. you make whatever the fuck you want um, as long as it's good so, and as long as you know what you're making, like you gotta, you gotta know the identity of your ramen bowl. Like same thing with the knife. Exactly. That's so funny that you draw those comparisons. I love it. Um, <laughs> so, so you're making, you're making these knives for, for these chefs that are, you know, if, if, if someone's investing that kind of coin in a, in a knife, I feel like they're probably either super into cooking at home in a, in a, you know, kind of obsessive way. Or it's 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 for the professional, right? And so, do you do you enjoy restaurants? Do you like um, you know people who are kind of pushing the boundaries with food, or oh, yeah. you know, doing it very aesthetically? Because I have this question that I ask a lot of my guests, which is like, if you if you had an all expenses paid restaurant experience, what restaurant would you go to? Do you, is hmm. there any place that you've kind of been thinking about wanting to to experience? Probably sushi in japan love it love it probably 
the the caveat with that question is is usually if if in that all expenses paid trip you could have that dinner with anyone that would you could have a dinner conversation with and that would be like alive or dead does anyone come to mind that you would want to have that experience with hmm oh man there's a lot i mean anthony bourdain for yeah, one classic um bob kramer would be cool i've talked to him once but it would be nice to have like a sit down dinner with him right or just hmm i don't know there's a lot of cool chefs out there there's a lot of just cool people that i like to pick their brains yeah specifically about food or would you ask them about business or i'm particularly interested in in what you would want to know from bob kramer uh business and life okay finding a yeah. balance or or just growing one or finding fulfillment in in that pursuit all of the above yeah like yeah. kind of his journey his path the struggles he went through like answers he's found just a lot of that i've i've noticed when i started making knives full-time the hardest part wasn't making knives the hardest part was actually the business itself sure and so i mean talk about someone who's found a reasonable level of success in that bob kramer's the guy mm -hmm. yeah yeah that, that's crazy well in, in in line with that, one other rapid-fire question I have that I normally ask chefs is what's one technique you're intimidated by in the kitchen still? But uh, for you specifically on the knife-making front, is there a knife-making technique that you're still kind of intimidated by or that you won't, you haven't touched yet or you want to get good at in the future? Oh, my God, so many. Where do I even start? <laughs> God. Like, one is, like, forging a forge welding. I'm starting to dabble a little bit that now. Uh -huh. um, two is, like, engraving and gold inlay and that kind of stuff like really taking a knife to the nth level as far as like fit finish and embellishments three efficiency like a surface grinder cnc machines building the whole entire team up more building like series of knives instead of just like one-offs um what else single bevels god jesus christ single bevels yeah, huge pandora's box there i, I can imagine it's I started making my first single bevel. I was like, Jesus Christ, how do people do this shit? <laughs> it's probably so temperamental. Man, like I, I learned so much from these conversations because like I've I, I've I have a bunch of knives, like I've I've you know, held a bunch of knives and gone through that buying process, but I have yet to make a knife of my own. And so I, I, I always enjoy hearing kind of like the trials and tribulations that go along with these these tools that are just, you know, in our lives on the day to day, but we don't, we don't think often about like the process by which they're, they're designed and made. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Is there, is there, I mean, I honestly feel like we could, you know, this is the first time we're, we're having a formal conversation and I, I feel like we could, we could go on for, for a while, but I want to, I want to respect your time and you know, this can lead to an episode two in, in the future. But I think sure. is, is there anything that um, you want to kind of leave people with or something that you want to chat through that we haven't covered yet? Uh, yeah, for anybody who's like thinking about high end knives and like, kind of the, it's a little bit daunting. You're just like, I'm spending a lot of money. Like, what am I getting? And like, how much should I spend? What should I fucking get? Uh, my answer to that is like, there's point of diminishing returns that you start to hit and you're not getting better. You're getting different. You're getting different and you're getting unique. And a lot of times with very expensive knives, that's what you're paying for. You're not paying for really performance. I mean, you are, you are. Like bare minimum, you should get performance. 
And if you're not, then you're getting fucking ripped off. But secondary after that, it's like you're paying for something that somebody put their heart and soul in, like fit and finish. It's not always super necessary, but you're paying for it. Um, but if you're just looking for performance, you don't need to spend more than, I don't know, like $300. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I would, I would, I would say that's a really good place to, to start. And that's, you know, when people ask me what knife should I buy, because I get that question an exhaustive amount. That's mm. usually one of the first follow-up questions I have is kind of like, what is your budget? Because if you're, yeah. if you're telling me you don't want to spend more than 80 bucks, it's, it kind of puts you in a, in a, in a bracket of this is what you can like this is the best bang for your buck you can get with that but when you're talking about performance when you're talking about quality when you're talking about you know ergonomics and like just materials used in general i think that you know anything over that kind of 250 dollars 300 price point you certainly launch yourself into that sector but then as we spoke about that also comes with all of these other with with great power comes great responsibility kind of things you know yep. you need to be able to you need to be able mm-hmm. to 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 back it up with a little bit of maintenance in that yeah too. and i'll ask them it's like why are you buying a knife like do you just need to cut shit because <laughs> if you have a knife that's decent like just take care of it and then it'll sure. be fine or if you want to buy a knife for like enjoyment what's your cutting board like how do you store it how do you wash it like those are important questions too totally what do you see in store for you in the next, if you had to kind of project it out, I, I'm, I'm going to say two to three years because I think five years in, in this kind of environment is a little bit too too far out to kind of think about. Mm. But you you mentioned kind of more consistency. You mentioned scale, scaling up. You mentioned kind of like growing the team a little bit. Um, what can kind of people expect from you over the next couple, couple I would say 24 months, let's say? I, I mean, first and foremost is just making more and better knives. Like, like what I was talking about with pattern welding and embellishments. Like, I want to make some of the best fucking kitchen knives that the world has seen. Killer. That's 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 bar bar minimum. That's what I want to do. But aside from that, it's like growth in general of the business. Like, I I'm getting to the point now where I have I'm gonna have four knives finished, and photographing them myself takes a lot of time. And I would right. rather spend that time making knives. So I've got to find somebody to photograph them. Like I could send them all out, but I'd like to find somebody local to help with that. Yep. And then like if the YouTube thing takes off, then finding somebody to help film and edit. And then eventually when we get more efficient and I can start doing like a series of more affordable knives and stuff like that, then hire more people to help with actually the knife making part. Right. Right. All right, man. Well, I think that that is going to, going to do it i if, if there's anything else that we want to want to cover i think a continuation episode is is definitely something i would like to get on the books because this has been been really really fascinating and and i really enjoyed our our time together where where can people find you where do you want to direct people um most of my focus is on instagram and my youtube well the youtube whenever i get to it right, that's on right. free time but yeah those those would be the places to find like a lot of my information. Love my it. website works too. Um, you can find my newsletter on there. That's where I kind of post like big updates or things for sale. But yeah, Instagram is where I post most of my work. YouTube is the the process itself. Cool. And yeah, I think that the you know you're you're obviously a wealth of knowledge, and I feel like you know people especially who have little quirks that they want to 
you know, ask you about whether it's around sharpening or different steel materials that they see you posting about. I, I had a couple of questions come in. We, we covered it, but um, mm. questions just about using carbon fiber in a knife handle and just like all these interesting things. I, I, I think people will really enjoy kind of your, your, your welcome addition to my Instagram feed <laughs> to, to bring it full <laughs> circle of, you know, people, people talking shit and getting <laughs> too up in arms about things. Like, I always get excited when I see a new knife from you, man. So awesome. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd be super down for part two. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now is normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here. Excuse me. Pardon me.